Well, this morning, um, so, so excited to be uh, opening God's Word with you. And by the way, my name is Matt, if, if we've never met, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have the scripture on the screen for you. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to get one in your hands. After the service, you can go to the connection corner or let those folks know, and we'll make arrangements to get you a Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now today what I want to talk about is kings and thrones. Kings and thrones and what they say about our life. And I want to look at just a couple of moments in an Old Testament uh, story arc. And I, I want to kind of just observe a couple of things there. And then as we wrap up, I want to jump into a New Testament story and sort of tie those things together. So let me set up just a little bit what we're going to be looking at here in First. Samuel. We're going to jump into a story that takes place in the 11th century where the elders or the leaders of Israel, they are approaching Samuel who is uh, kind of the main prophet in that time and uh, they are coming to him basically to make a demand or a request for a king. We as the Israelites, we want to have a king. We want to have a king just like the other nations. And so that's the scene we're, we're jumping into. But just to rewind for a second, uh, about 400 years before this is when the Israelites are um, rescued or delivered from Egypt. The, the moment that they are delivered from Pharaoh and they are um, delivered from that moment of slavery. And so God set up and established a theocracy. Now a theocracy was basically a, a nation of law that was administered by judges. So, so in short, God would be the king, and he would give the law, he'd provide the law, and then the judges would administer the law. And you see, God did not want Israel to have a king. He, he knew that the person that you depended on would become the, the person that you placed your hope in, the, the person in which you would trust. And, and God wanted the nation of Israel to trust him. See, the nation of Israel, they're God's chosen people, and through them, their lives, their story, God is rolling out a story of redemption that will open up a way for all of mankind to have a restored relationship with their creator. And so his desire is that Israel would be different. They wouldn't have a human king, but he would be their king. And um, all the nations around them, they had kings. They had human kings. And the Israelites knew this well because many of their ancestors grew up in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So they understood this concept of the king and the power of the throne. And yet God said, hey, listen, put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. I'll be your king. I'll give you your laws I'll tell you the ways in which to live, and I'll provide these judges to help administer these laws. Because God wants the world to look at Israel and see these people are different. There's something different about these people. They don't need a human king. They have God as their king, and he provides for them, and he cares for them, and he gives them everything they need. Who is this God who serves and cares for his people. So in Samuel 8, we find Samuel who's getting older, he's getting along in his years, and he makes a move to sort of set up his succession plan, and he appoints his sons as Israel's judges. And unfortunately, this ended up not working out well for them at all, because his sons were nothing like him. In fact, they were greedy, and they were corrupt, 
and they take this whole system and they begin to make it about themselves and they kind of mess the whole thing up. And so the elders show up and kind of beat down Samuel's door and they say, hey, listen, we want a king. So Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, which what a great way to start a conversation with somebody that you're wanting to get something from. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So the people demand a king. Samuel's frustrated. He prays and God says, Samuel, hey, look, don't take this personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I have been present with them all along. I brought them out and delivered them from Egypt. I rescued them. I cared for them. I provided them. I walked them into the promised land. But they forsake me. These people, their memories are so short. They forget so easily. And they keep looking over their shoulder at these other nations and these other kings. And they think that that's what they want. Well, listen, if they want a human king, you need to warn them that this isn't going to be all rainbows and sunshine. See, the king, he's going to tax them. This is what it means for the king to claim his rights. The king's going to tax them. He's going to put them to work. He's going to take their sons and put them on the battlefield. And he's going to take their daughters and put them to work within his kingdom. He's going to take the best of their fields and their crops and their vineyards, and he's going to use it to serve himself and his attendants. He's going to take a portion of the flocks and the herds, and they will become his slaves. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us, And to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So Samuel goes and God directs him to anoint Saul as Israel's first king. Now, if you will, flip forward to uh, chapter 17. We're going to briefly look at uh, the story of David and Goliath, which Kondo taught from just a few weeks ago and just did an unbelievable job in the Storytime series. And uh, so we're going to just kind of go through a little bit of, of that uh, passage again. But I, I want to look at one different unique angle that pertains to Saul and to the king and to the throne. So now to, to catch you up, to remind you that the Philistine army is set up up on the top of a hill. And then the Israelite army is set up on the top of another hill, and there is a valley in between them. And Goliath, who is this huge giant, this champion warrior, uh, over nine feet tall, heads down to the valley, and he starts screaming up to the Israelites, Hey, send somebody down here to fight me. Send somebody down here. Let's do this right here, right now. Winner take all. If I defeat you, 
you all serve us. If you defeat me, we serve you. Got it? Deal? Good? Done? Let's get ready to rumble. I mean, it's just like he sets up the whole thing and he's like, let's do this right now. Your armies don't want to climb up the hill. We don't want to climb up the hill. Just come down to the valley one-on-one. Winner takes all. Chapter 17, verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days The Philistine warrior comes down to the valley twice a day and he taunts and he screams at the Israelites and he hurls up insults and he defies them and the army and he says, send a man down to fight me. Now let me back up to when Samuel anoints Saul as the king. It says that he was more handsome than anyone and he stood a head taller than anyone in all the nation. So the Israelites, they want this king. They want to be like the other cool big shot nations that have their kings. And so God grants their request and he gives them a king, a king who stands taller than anyone else in the nation. There's no one who stands out in the way that Saul stands out. So when the neighboring country comes and they come to pick a fight and they send out their giant for a winner takes all battle, Who do you think the Israelites are looking to, to go down and show Goliath what's up? Saul. They're looking to Saul. He's their big shot. He's our awesome giant king. No one's taller than him. And yet there are crickets coming out of Saul's tent. A couple tumbleweeds blow by. There's nothing happening out of Saul's tent. He is missing in action and every single day that passes by, he's losing credibility. The king who is occupying the throne is frozen in fear and the people have placed their hope in him, their dependence, their trust, and he's not showing How often do we place our hope in something and it doesn't deliver? Maybe it's the the dream job that you finally land and get into and it just doesn't pan out to be what you thought it would be. Maybe it's the relationship that's supposed to bring all kinds of fulfillment and yet it's just drowning in heartache. Maybe it's the pursuit of a dollar amount in your bank account. And yet, once you get there, it just doesn't feel like enough. And the chase and the pursuit just doesn't end. Maybe it's a degree that's going to be your ticket in. And yet, none of the doors open. Possibly a parent, the one person that you are supposed to be able to rely on. And they have let you down. Or a friend who's turned their back and betrayed you. For the Israelites, their dream king has become a nightmare. And their enemies are sitting across the valley just having a good laugh at their expense. And then enter David, all of 15 years old. And somehow he shows up on the scene and he gets the one thing 
the one thing that all of his fellow countrymen and his king have forgotten. Now, he's already, where well, we're going to catch up with him, he's already convinced Saul to let him go and fight Goliath. And he's approaching Goliath and he's going down there with no armor and he's going down there with just a slingshot and some stones that he's pulled out of a creek. And we pick it up in verse 45 of chapter 17. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike, down, I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword. It is not by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. David is clear. He, he's confident. He's on a mission, but don't miss his humility. He understands his role in the story so beautifully. He's not going to let this giant come out and defy their army, the army of God, the God of Israel. He's not going to let this Philistine army come against them and be victorious because he knows better. He knows it's God that's going to deliver Goliath into his hands. The God of Israel will win and everyone will witness it. And right there, that's what God wanted for his people. That was his design for the nation of Israel. He wanted his nation to be different. So when the world looked on, it would look completely different than the rest of the world around them. Who are these Israelites? What is it about Israel? What does it mean that it's not by sword or spear, but the Lord saves? Who is this king? And it would be the thing that would drive people towards God. And David teenage David somehow gets that and he defeats Goliath and he gives God the glory. And the story of David and Goliath, it's not where Saul's kingdom falls apart. That process has already begun. You see, Saul experienced a little bit of success early on in his kingdom. He walked into some really big key battlefield moments. And he led the armies in. And just like David experiences with Goliath, there are a number of these moments where God delivers Saul and the Israelites in the battlefield. And he begins to find favor and momentum. And the people are pretty happy because they have their human king and things are going well. But once Saul tasted a little bit of that victory, a little bit of the success, he starts to drink his own Kool-Aid and read his own press. And he begins to take control. He begins to take matters into his own hands. He, he begins to lose patience in the process of what it means to wait on the Lord. And he just begins to step forward. I mean, he was a big deal after all. The first king of Israel, the first king of God's chosen people. 
And yet when he tasted a little bit of success, he lost his role in the story and the train starts coming off the tracks. And when a God-fearing teenager shows up and wipes out the giant, it's merely a punctuation mark on a kingdom that Saul has lost and will eventually completely lose. How often do we taste a little bit of success in our lives? And we begin to prop ourselves up and drink our own Kool-Aid and read our own press and slip ourselves onto the throne of our lives. Please take note of Paul's story, of Saul's story, excuse me. And rest assured that when you lose sight of your role and your place in the story, it's only a matter of time before it will fall apart. And I can't tell you when and where and how, but it will fall apart. David eventually becomes Israel's second and greatest king. And he wasn't perfect. And we know that. In fact, several of his mistakes were huge mistakes. And they're pretty big stories in their own right. But even in his sin, even in his sin, David was quick to remember his role. And, and recenter and refocus on a trust and a dependence in the God who occupied the throne. We, we see this later in David's life. He, he writes a glimpse of this in the Psalms, chapter 25, verse 1. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Verse 3, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Verse 5, guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? What is it that's occupying the throne of your life? Last Sunday, we came together, Easter Sunday, and we celebrated an empty tomb. And the hope and the power that's represented in the fact that Jesus is risen. And yet Jesus rising from the dead was not and is not the end of the story. In fact, shortly after he rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that he ascended to heaven where he is seated on the throne next to the right hand of God the Father. The throne of heaven is occupied by the living king, the king who defeated sin, the king who defeated death. And he wants you, he's inviting you to place all of your hope and your trust in him. Where is your hope? What are you depending on today? The promotion? The relationship? The, the, the status? The raise? The degree? Are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Through Jesus Christ, you have been invited into the throne room and you have a seat at the table waiting for you. And because of Jesus, Father God looks at you as an heir to the throne. And yet for some of us, something is holding you back. Something is, is, is holding you back from 
receiving and accepting that invitation. Maybe for some of us, we've accepted an invitation, but, but failure and repeated struggle and defeat has caused us to just give up on the idea of hope and has caused us to turn away and hang our heads in guilt and shame and think there's, there's no place for me here. My life is just too much of a mess. We'll flip over to John chapter 21. And I, I wanna look at this New Testament story of someone I think who can relate. So, so as we wrap this up and, and tie this all together, I want to look at uh, one of the disciples, Peter. He, he has had a rough run the past couple of weeks. Jesus predicted that uh, when he would be arrested, that Peter would deny Jesus three times. He, he would deny any sort of relationship or knowledge of him. Jesus gets arrested. Peter grabs a sword. He cuts an ear off of a guy and Jesus yells at him, Peter, stop. What are you doing? This is, I'm supposed to be doing this. This is the story. I'm playing the role in the story. Put the sword away. It's not by spear. It's not by sword that the Lord saves. They take Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. And because it's late, some of the servants, they, they light a fire to warm themselves. And so Peter kind of cozies up next to this fire and begins to, to warm himself. At which point people start to say to him, hey, 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 we know you. Aren't, aren't you also one of the disciples? Aren't you one of the disciples that, that knows Jesus? Peter goes, no. No, I'm not. It's not, not me. And this scene repeats itself two more times. Jesus dies. He's buried. He raises again. And now we're catching up with some of the disciples who, led by Peter, are, have decided to go fishing. And what's fascinating about this is I think this shows some of the disciples at one of their lowest points. Check this out. John chapter 21, verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered, like you do when you've been fishing all night and you haven't caught anything. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. First, they are fishing. Now, why is this significant? Because fishing is how Jesus originally found them when he called them to come and follow him. Remember, put down your nets, throw down your nets. You don't need those anymore. Put down your nets and come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And yet here they are back in the boat fishing. The dream, the mission, the promise, the calling, the revolution, it's died. And now they're back to fishing. Look at verse seven again quickly. When Peter realizes it's the Lord, it says he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Some would say that he is fishing naked. 
or at least in his underwear. And I realize that's awkward, but the guy has denied Jesus a whole bunch of times after he said he wouldn't. Jesus dies, and now he's out on the lake fishing in his underwear. Could there be possibly a picture of a guy that's more down and out? Like, this is it. This is a guy who's hit the low. And where is his hope? Where is his trust? He's walking away from the following. He's walking away from the calling. He's moving back towards the life in which he lived before Jesus called him. And yet this stranger on the beach calls out to them and says, hey, throw your nets to the other side of the boat. And it fills up with a bunch of fish. And Peter realizes, that's Jesus. So he puts his clothes back on and he jumps in the water to swim 100 yards. And which to me is Peter might be proof of ADD. I don't know. I mean, who puts their clothes back on to go swimming? I, it's just, I find that odd. And then I just see the disciples like, rowing back in with all the fish, like, Peter's such an idiot. He's always doing these ridiculous things. So he swims up to shore and we check in on the scene on the beach. Verse nine, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. Verse 15, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter experiences failure and defeat. And he begins to walk back towards the life he had before Jesus. And yet he spends all night fishing with no success. Enter Jesus, the risen Savior, the King who is making his final rounds before he ascends to the throne. And he could have so easily just settled the score and just made it right with this guy who's denied him and punished him and pushed it in his face. But Jesus shows up and he speaks and there's this abundant blessing of fish. And it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, you can try all you want, but nothing is going to work outside of placing your trust in me. And by the way, let me prove it to you and blow you away with the overflowing amount of gracious blessing I'm gonna pour out over you. And they get to the shore and here is the savior of the world, the king of kings, once again postured to serve. Just like he uh, served them in the last supper, he fed them, he washed their feet, he hosted them. One more time, he's gonna sit them down and he's gonna feed them. And Peter sits down next to the fire with the red coals to warm himself after his swim. And I have to wonder if his mind doesn't instantly flash back to the last time we saw him sitting by a fire to warming himself. And he starts to think, oh man, I blew it. And then Jesus presses in and he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Of course, of course I do. You know I do. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Go take care of my church. Go take care of my people. 
And then later in the passage, he re-invites Peter. Peter, follow me. See, this is, Je this is Jesus reinstating Peter. Th this is him saying, Peter, what I did at the cross, I paid for all of that. I took care of it. Your sin, your mistake, your denial of me. It's as far as from the east to the west as far as I'm concerned. All I want to do is remind you of the fact, if you love me, if you trust me, then we're good. Feed my people. Feed my church. Take care of my people. Follow me. I get it. You blew it. And you're out here thinking, well, I'm just going to go back to fishing. I guess this thing's over. But don't you see it? In me, you have everything. I will take care of you. Now follow me. Realign yourself with your role in the story and serve me and my people. Peter, my original invite still stands. Stop moping around. Let the mistakes go. Let's move forward. And when we end up like Peter, hope is lost and we are defeated and we've made a mess of our lives. We often find ourselves drifting back to the places in which Jesus originally found us and saved us from because we've bought into the lie that we've lost our seat at the table. And the truth is the Savior, the King, the one who's sitting on the throne, he's saying, hey, come have breakfast. Come sit with me. Come be with me. Be, be renewed. Be restored. What are you doing over there? Why are you messing with that? Why does that have control over you? Get over here. I made you breakfast. Do you love me? Good. Then stop drifting back out to sea and come follow me. What does the throne say about your life? What does the throne say about you and your life? Are you focused on an earthly king or, or a human solution? Because I'm telling you, if your hope is in anyone or anything other than Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. Point your hope and your trust towards the throne that is eternal. And have you messed up and you feel like things are beyond repair? Sit down and have breakfast with your Savior who is extending the invitation for you to take your seat at his table and let him do the work of restoring you to following him. Just like God wanted the world to experience him through the nation of Israel, he wants the world to experience Jesus through you. How different would it be, even in our failures, if we confidently yet humbly approached the throne of grace and declared, Jesus, my King, for you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so, so very much for your grace and for your love. And Lord, we thank you that we have a King who sits on a throne that we can trust and will never be defeated and will never abandon us. Lord, we need you to restore us 
We, we, we need you to remind us that we have a seat waiting for us at the table. We need for you to silence the lies in our life that are telling us that we've messed up too many times or our life is beyond repair. Father, call us back to you. And I pray that we would be found faithful as people who trust in you with all of our days. In Christ's name.